0: Heavenly Father, we know that we cannot run a race that has not been run by Christ first. It is only because he, the faithful God-man, did what we could not and would not do. I ask, Lord, that you would, by your Holy Spirit, bless us this morning in a mighty way. And it will take your Holy Spirit... This is not a teaching the flesh can receive and then think we can run on our own. It is a teaching that requires humility and submission. Knowing, Father, that what is impossible for us is not impossible for you. I ask, for that you would give us an understanding of this race that has been set before us. Not just individually, but as a church, that we would see this great race of faith that you've called us to live, that you've equipped us to live, so that we can be not only blessed one to another, but bless this dark world with the gospel of Jesus Christ, that they too might see there's a race to be run, a finish line to be crossed. And Christ to be that prize. Lord, I know how difficult it can be to sit and listen. And so I ask, Lord, that you would, by your Spirit, equip our ears to be fine tuned to hear what you have to say as you use this sinner saved by grace to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. We need your Holy Spirit, Father, for the faithful proclamation and the faithful reception, and the faithful transformation of the hearts and minds of your people. And so we come humbly, beseeching you to be gracious with us this morning. Let this not be just another Lord's day. Let it be a day with high expectations that we as a people would run the race faithfully to the end, each and every one of us, and by your grace, come into the presence of Christ forever and ever. We ask this for his glory. He is most certainly worthy of it. Amen. Amen. Hebrews chapter 12 is a a turning point in the book. Um, I hope that you, as we made it through Hebrews 11, we spent a little bit more time than I had originally planned, but I hope that it was encouraging to look back at Men and women, just like us, saved by grace, who endured to the end and did great things in the name of Christ, and that you were able to say to yourself, I can live that life too by the power of the Holy Spirit. I pray that was the case for you. As we turn here to Hebrews 12, we, we enter into a dialogue about the expectation of God's church to run, to run a race. Hence, the title of the sermon is The Race of Faith. And the author uses a, a literary technique. It's an analogy. And that analogy is, an analogy is something simple. It's where you take two things and you compare one to another that you might highlight or bring a deeper understanding of the point that you're trying to make. And here the author wants us to have a much deeper understanding of this life of faith, this race of faith that we are called to have. And so he literally compares it to running a race, a foot race. Now, I I don't know if it's still like this, but when I was a kid, running was a big deal. Running fast was a really big deal. In fact, when you were in elementary school, if you were one of the top three kids in your class, you could run the fastest. You were guaranteed at PE or recess to not only be a captain, and if not a captain, be picked in that first round to be on that team. Speed was important. In other words, there was honor and glory given to the kid who could run well and run fast. I would argue it's the same for our faith, my beloved. The author has clearly established at this point in time that Jesus Christ is our merciful and faithful high priest, the one who ran the race perfectly, ascending the cross shedding his blood in order to cleanse us of our sins and enable us to draw near to God as a friend rather than a foe. In Hebrews ten twenty one, the author said, since we have a great high priest over the house of God, that's Christ, verse 22, he said, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of what? Of faith. Full assurance of faith. Faith in the person of Jesus Christ. Faith in the work that he accomplished on the cross for you. Faith in the fact that the Father received that work on your behalf and was pleased with the offering. Faith in Jesus being exalted to the right hand of God, the most powerful position in the known universe. Faith that Jesus Christ promises, listen, to receive all who run the race of faith to the end. He promises you that that you will join him on the throne, reigning with him over heaven and earth forever and ever. One of the main points the author has been trying to make throughout the book is the warning if you stop running the race. What happens if you stop short? If you don't make it to the finish line? If you turn back and go the other way? We saw in chapter 10, the author said this, My righteous one, God speaking, my righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, that literally means to retreat or to run backwards. God said, my soul will have no pleasure in him. But then God said, but we are not of those who shrink back on or destroyed." He says, not the church, not those of Christ, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. And then he spent an entire chapter, chapter 11, giving us the heroes of the faith, not to discourage us, but to look at men and women throughout the centuries, sinners saved by grace, who persevered suffering and torture and some horrific deaths, and yet they kept the faith and preserved their souls. They made it all the way across that finish line. They did not retreat, and as a result, they received the crown of glory. And then upon this great cloud of witnesses that we have heard about for the past several weeks, The author goes from the past right to his original audience and he says, listen, I'm gonna give you one of the most important imperatives in all of sacred scripture. He gave it to his audience by God's grace. The Holy Spirit will give it to you and that is to run the race set before us. To live a life of faith until you take your last breath so that you will have a future breath by God's grace. This morning, I want to I look at that race. I want to look at what that race means, the instructions of the race, the power to run, the reason to run. Those are going to be our three points. I pray you'll stay with me this morning. There's, we're going to do some running now, but this is not the only time we do it. So the instructions to run, the power to run, and the reason to run. We should run. Number one, the instructions to run. Look at verse 1. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1. The author says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, he said, Let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. He starts verse 1 saying, therefore, and therefore he what? He connects us to all the heroes of the faith in chapter 11. Therefore, let us, just like they did, run this race hard, long, and well. Now, the author is speaking to his audience as the word of God, I pray, is speaking to you. It is a call to perseverance. Perseverance. It is a call to make it all the way to the end. Now, this great cloud of witnesses, I've heard it preached like this. I don't believe this is an accurate interpretation. It's not these these witnesses seated in a stadium like the Olympics looking down upon the church saying, run, run, run. It's their lives. It's the testimony of their lives lived in faith that we can look back on and see that God did great things, exercised great power in sinners just like us. He saved them, he sanctified them, and he sustained them all the way across that finish line. In other words, they are proof positive that God can do what man cannot do. They are proof positive that he can take people just like us. And if you know yourself well, you know how deep that sin runs. And he can save you and he can sanctify you and he can give you feet to run a race all the way across that finish line too. Many before us have completed the race. They have received the crown. Many after us will complete the race. They will receive the crown and therefore we can too. What is impossible for us is not impossible for God. So if you're sitting here saying, oh, the whole idea of running anymore, I'm exhausted. I'm exhausted. I can't make it. Life's too hard. It's now too long. The author's saying, foolishness. Christ has run it. He's completed it for you, and he's empowered you by his spirit to do the same. Amen? All right. Look at verse one again. Therefore what? In light of this great cloud of witnesses, therefore the author says, let us also, just like All the faithful saints in Hebrews chapter 11, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. This is a single imperative. Run the race. Run the race that is set before you. And then he gives us two qualifications, two aspects of how we're to do that. He says, lay aside every weight and sin that keeps you from running well and then run with endurance. One imperative, run the race. How do you do it? Lay aside the sin, lay aside the weights and run with endurance. Now I want you to notice, he says, the race that is set before us, that's the church. That's the life of faith. And God has set before us individually and collectively a particular race a race that you are to run and that we are to run together. And whether that means temporal victories and much success like we saw in Hebrews 11 with some of the Old Testament saints or much suffering and torture and maybe even a martyr's death. This race is set before you by God. He has decided how your life will proceed. He has decreed how this church will move. And therefore we are to, by faith, do what? We are to live being sure of things hoped for and certain of that which is not seen. Living the life of faith. It is a Proverbs 3, trusting in the Lord with what? With all your heart. Leaning not on your own understanding, but doing what? Acknowledging him in all your ways. It is a life of complete and total submission to Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior over your life. Every moment of every day, every relationship, every decision, every dollar you spend, He is Lord. You walk in faith and not by sight. Now for the author's first century audience, when they heard the word race, they would have thought foot race. There was a, what's called the Pan-Hellenic Games, which included the Olympics, which is where we get that thing we do every four years. And then racing, foot racing, was, it was the primary sport. Even the pentathlon, they always did that first. Short races, long races. Most of you know that any, any serious athletic event requires effort, exertion, struggle, suffering, if you want to make it to the finish line, if you want to cross and you actually want to win a prize, you got to work hard to get there. Now the Christian life, the Christian race is a hard race too. Even though you've been saved by grace, indwelt by the Holy Spirit, and you know that you have victory in Christ, it's a hard race to run. I think it was Tozer who said, Christianity has not been tried and found lacking, it's been tried and found difficult and therefore not tried at all. Until we are free of these earthly bodies, you will continuously engage in that Romans chapter 7 battle of the flesh and the spirit. That's part of the run. That's why it's so hard. You will say like the Apostle Paul in Romans 7, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing that I hate. Was that your week? It was mine. I do not do the good that I want, but the evil I do not want to do. This I keep on doing. That's why it's so hard. That's why the race is hard, because the flesh still battles the spirit. And this is precisely why the author says, here's what you got to do. Here are two invaluable tools to make sure that when you step on that track, when you proclaim Christ, you run well. First, he says, look at verse 1 again. He said, let us also, like the saints of old in Hebrews 11, let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely to us, now this race metaphor, again, it would have made so much more sense to them when they, would, when they would go to the games, like the Olympic games, and they would enter the stadium, people from different regions and, and different areas throughout the empire would come, and the runners would have robes, and they were all colorful robes, and they would, they, would, they would be robes that would tell about their family or their place of origin or their clan, but they didn't wear those robes when they stepped onto the track. They would take the robes off. They would literally set them aside, or they would put them away. And they did that so that their legs would be free to run well. The Christian runs the race of faith. He must, she must do the same. We must lay aside, literally in the Greek it says to put away. Put away. Throw away. Listen. Every single thing in your life that prevents you from running well. Every single thing. He obviously starts with sin because sin... Creates a barrier between us and God. You can't run well if you have sin clinging to you. You say, well, I'm always going to sin. I'm called to confess my sin. That is true. But these sins that cling to us, these are the sins that we battle again and again and again, and we refuse to mortify. We call them besetting sins. I don't know why we call them that. I don't like that. They're sins that keep us from running effectively with the Lord. The answer to this is simple. You mortify them. You put them to death. You confess them to God. You confess them to one another. And you fight and you fight and you fight until you can put them away and get rid of them completely. That sin in your life, that besetting sin, that one you've dealt with for years, no longer keeps you from running hard and running fast and running all the way to the end. Sin entangles us. That's, that's, most of us say, well, of course. That's easy to understand. But he says something else here that to magnify what he's trying to accomplish. He says, not only do we need to put away sin, but any weight, any hindrance, anything in your life, and I couldn't, I couldn't do this in 10 hours, anything in your life that keeps you from running the race of faith really, really well, really well. Blessings, usually, blessings given to us that we make inordinate, I believe that one of the reasons this imperative is in the first person plural, he says, let us, not you, but us collectively as a church, is because it's impossible to run this race well on your own. The picture is a marathon, but I I want you to think of it differently. It's a marathon where we're all gathered together and we're all running together. Our arms are bound together, so you have all these people running the race together. You see, there'll be weights in your life Not necessarily sin, but idols of blessings that become sinful. And there are things you're not going to see on your own. Blessings like work, school, hobbies that engage us, relationships. Things that may slow you down that you do not see, but others in the body of Christ can see. And brothers and sisters will come up to you and say, listen, I love you. Do you see this is becoming inordinate in your life? Do you see this might be hindering, binding your legs from running the race of faith? Years ago, we had a dear brother who was gifted with industry. That's a glorious gift, by the way. I mean, this man worked, and he worked, and he worked. He was the testimony of Proverbs 10, 4 that says, A slack hand causes poverty, but the hand of the diligent makes rich. But the more this man worked and the more money that he made and the more responsibility he got at work, the less he ran the the race of faith. He began to neglect his wife, his children, and the church. Now some of his brothers thankfully came up to him and said, hey, I see a weight that's tied around you. Your work has become an idol. You've put it over your wife and your children and the ministry at the church. Now by God's grace, this man was humble enough in the spirit to heed the counsel of his brothers. And he didn't stop working. He continued to work, but it was no longer inordinate. It wasn't an idol. And he began, instead of running the race of work, he began to run the race of faith, reengaging and ministering to his wife, raising up his children in the faith and becoming an active, vibrant member of the church again. It was a glorious thing to see. He did not see it until it was pointed out by a brother or brothers in Christ. So in order to run the race well, we must lay aside every weight and every sin. So ask yourself, what in my life right now am I aware of that is causing my faith to not be brilliant? That's slowing me down. And then you might want to come up to a brother and just say, hey, you know what? There's got to be things that I'm blinded by. Can you help me see? Speak into my life. Do you see anything at all? Work, family, church, community. Do you see anything that may be impeding my ability to run this race well. And there's a reason for that. The second tool that he says, lay aside every weight and every sin. And the number two, he said, run the race with what? With endurance. Look at it again, verse one. Let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. So the metaphor we get quickly, it's not a sprint. You don't need endurance for a sprint. 40 yard dash, you run it, you're exhausted, you're done. This picture is a marathon. It is a race that requires speed, steadiness, patience, endurance, to get all the way to the end of the finish line. Now when I was training for qualification entrance into the United States Navy, one of the qualifications was I had to run three consecutive miles in under 18 minutes. Now, I'm not a long-distance runner. We grew up playing sports, so short runs, okay, a little bit of long-term running, but putting out three miles, three six-minute miles back-to-back was much harder than I thought. You run too fast at the beginning, you don't make it to the end. You run too slow at the beginning, you blow past the 18-minute mark. In order to complete the task, I had to run hard but I had to run with endurance. The goal of the finish line had to be before me. And the author's saying here, every single Christian must keep the goal, the finish line of Christ before us. We must fix our eyes completely upon Christ because the danger if we don't is not finishing the race. The author has addressed that already. He warned that some will start well. Remember Hebrews 6, 4, enlightened, tasting the heavenly gift, sharing in the Holy Spirit, but what happens? They don't finish. They don't finish at all, and they are subject to destruction. The Christian must exert every effort, his entire life, by the power of the Spirit to finish the race and cross the line. Despite the hardship, despite the exhaustion, the pain, we must do so with this long view in mind. A a person in decent shape, who wants to run a marathon. A marathon is 26 plus miles. That's a good clip. The average person must train 16 to 20 weeks minimum in advance of the day that they run the race. For those who want to be competitive and not just finish, but actually try to win a prize, they have to eat strict diets, engage in strength training, be constantly aware of their joints and tendons, and they will train six months in advance of a single race, half year. Some of them toward the end of their training averaging 45 to 50 miles a week to get to that race. Injury and burnout are the two primary reasons the runner never makes it to the starting line or doesn't make it to the finish line. Now my beloved, if it takes that kind of discipline, physical and mental discipline, to run a 26 mile foot race, how much more must be required of the church of Jesus Christ if we are going to engage in this great battle of faith in the race that we're called to run. My beloved, you know that the temptation of the flesh is strong, the temptation of the world is strong. You battle against dominions of darkness. You battle against demons, much more than just physical or mental. So you, are, you have an attack coming from all sides. Every single attack is trying to bind your legs to trip you up so that one of two things happen. Either you run the race but you do it so poorly you enter into heaven by the very flames of hell and God says, what is there to show for the life you've lived? Or worse yet, we saw in Hebrews 6 and in Hebrews chapter 10, you may turn away altogether and the end is not the finish line, it is destruction. I do not believe nor do you if you know this race well. You don't just waltz across the finish line of salvation in Christ. My brother William this morning as we were praying, he said, it's not a picnic. The race is hard. The race is long. If we're not working hard in the spirit to do as Paul said, to press on toward the goal, to win the prize for which God has called us, heavenward in Christ Jesus, if we're not working hard and running hard, then we're not seeing this race clearly. Clearly we're not seeing it. Maybe we're not seeing it at all. How many Christians this morning will punch their race card of an hour, hour and a half in a church just like this and think they're running the race well because they did that? How many professing Christians neglect basic training exercises given to us in the Word of God? God says, Know thy word, meditate on my word. God says pray. God says gather as a church and pray. God says gather as a church and sing and hear the word proclaimed. God gives us basic training, teachings, personal evangelism, one-on-one discipleship, building up each other in the body. These are all training exercises to run this race well. If in hearing some of those you think, I don't do that at all. I mean, I just don't share the gospel. I'm not engaged in discipleship. I barely make it to church. You can know this for sure. You're not running the race well. That's a dangerous thing, my beloved. It's no small matter to kind of stumble along the race and think somehow you're going to stumble across the finish line. It's a dangerous thing. Christianity has often been compared to a a spectator sport. I think there's a lot of truth in that statement. But the author's saying... We're not spectators, we're what? We're runners. The author's saying get out of the seats, get on the track, and not only run the race, but run it hard, run it well, and run it long until you see Christ face to face. Now listen, Jesus Christ has guaranteed you will finish the race by his blood. And, it's not a but, it's an and, And you must endure to the end to cross the line. You say, well, no, I thought I was saved by grace through faith in Christ. Yes, and you must endure to the end. Jesus said, Matthew 24, 13, the one who endures to the end will what? Be saved. you got to get all the way through your last breath or there is no salvation. There's no salvation. You say, well, I want to. I want to make sure that you know, I live a life that's pleasing to the Lord. I want that crown to be glorious. That's a great goal. And make it to the end. All right. You still with me? Yeah. Are we running well right now? So here's a good example. Are you running well right now? Are you tired of thorns? I, I, I got like half that, Pastor. That's not good running. Running right now is listening intently and saying, Spirit, press this on my heart. That I can be changed by it. Point number two, the power to run. When you hear this, maybe you're thinking, huh, this is is ridiculous. I can barely make it through a day, let alone a week or a month or a year. I, I don't do marathons. I wasn't even good at sprinting. Where do we get the stamina? Where do we get the strength? Where do we get the power to run this race? Point number two, the power to run. Look at the latter part of verse one said, let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. How do we do it? Verse 2, looking to Jesus. Now, if you know your Bible, you say you can finish the sermons done. Sufficient. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated right now at the right hand of the throne of God. So you say, where do I get the power? Look to Christ. Look to Christ. But not just look to Christ as, we hear that usually when we think, Christ is the example. Christ as the model. Well, of course he is. He was the perfect man who ran the perfect race. But I don't know about you. If I want to be encouraged in this faith, I don't look to Christ and say, well, he did it perfectly. Because when I do, I know that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, every word, every thought, and every action, he did by faith in the Father. He lived the perfect life. And then when I open the Bible and I read and I look at my life, I know what the Apostle Paul meant when he says, all fall short of the glory of God. I see my sins in the depth of my sin. I truly believe that even my most righteous acts and my most righteous deeds are nothing but filthy, vile rags Before the living God. It's an important point. I don't want to miss it on noise. When we compare ourselves to Christ, that will not encourage you. That's not the intent of looking to Christ. He is the model, but that's not where you get the power. So how is looking to Christ, how should that encourage us? Look again, it says we look to Christ who is what? The founder and perfecter of our faith. So what does it mean that he's the founder and the perfecter? It means simply this, that our faith begins and it ends in Christ. It starts in Christ and it ends in Christ. He is the founder, if you believe it all then Jesus Christ is the founder. Some translations say the author of the faith, the champion of the faith, the pioneer of the faith. He is the very source of why we believe. It is Christ. And he is simultaneously the perfecter of it too. Through his perfect obedience to the Father, through his death and resurrection on the cross, Jesus Christ guarantees that we, now children of God by faith, will be made perfect too. In other words, you don't look to Christ and and compare yourself and say, maybe I can get there on my own. You look to Christ, you see the perfect work, you look at the depth of your own sin, and you say, it must be by faith. I'll never get there apart from faith. I must trust completely and wholly on the work of God through Jesus Christ. He is the foundation. He is the reason that you believe. Through his death and resurrection, we were told in Hebrews 5, 9, if you remember, that he is the source of eternal salvation. Take away the cross. Take away the sacrifice of Christ, his death, his resurrection. Listen, there's no salvation for mankind. If there's no salvation, there's no faith. There's no beginning of faith, and there's no end of faith. There's no salvation in Jesus Christ. That's why we can say he is the founder of it. Through his death and resurrection, any runner that's serious about completing a race keeps his eyes fixed on the finish line. Jesus Christ is the founder and he's the perfecter because he is the finish line. He's what we're aiming for. The finish line is Christ. It's being with Jesus. So he's the reason that we're running in the first place, the founder of our faith. He gave us the faith to believe. You believe because Christ gave it to you through the Spirit of God. And he is the end goal of our run. He is the perfecter of it as well. So when the believer, listen, looks away from everything else and he truly fixes his eyes upon Christ as the end and aim of faith. Oh, my beloved, when you do that and you realize that by faith, In Christ, you will be made perfect. That's encouraging. That will keep you running long and hard because you will see Christ waiting there for you. But there's another reason that we're given here. Look with me at the passage again, verse 2. The author reminds us of the sacrifice that was made that we might run at all. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. So Jesus Christ did not become the founder and perfecter of our faith because he is the son of God. You know that. That's not why he has that title. That role was given to him by the father because of his perfect faithfulness to run the race of faith. Because he did what the Father called him to do. He endured what? The cross. The gruesome, painful suffering of Roman crucifixion. Being nailed, hands and feet, to a cursed tree. Becoming for us the Passover lamb, as John the Baptist said, who takes away the sins of the world. He endured the cross by ascending taking on the full wrath. We say that almost every Sunday. I fear at times when we say it, it loses its impact. Jesus Christ endured the cross. It wasn't just the physical punishment. It wasn't just the shame. It wasn't the mocking. It was the fact that he took upon himself our sins. The scriptures say he bore in his flesh our sins on the tree. And in so doing, in receiving the equivalent of our, our eternity in hell, separation from the Father and the Spirit, he endured that so that we, what? By grace through faith could be completely forgiven and made sons and daughters of the kingdom. For our sake, Jesus Christ endured the cross. For our sake, he despised its shame. He said, what does that mean? Well, it was a criminal's cross, so criminal's death. So maybe that's what he's talking about. Yes and no. It was certainly the most painful, worst, humiliating form of punishment perfected by the Romans. Shameful in that way. But he despised its shame because of what the word of God said about dying such an ignominious death. According to the word of God, Galatians 3.13, the apostle Paul wrote this, Christ redeemed us, listen, from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us, for it is written, what? Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. He despised it because of what it said about his position as the son of God, the perfect man to ascend the cross and be cursed by God, and he was cursed. He had to be cursed so that you could be blessed. Christ had to be cursed so that you could be blessed. It was the only way. This agonizing, shameful, cursed death on the cross is the only way that God God the Son could accomplish the Father's will, and that is triumph over the power of sin and death for you, for us, that we might, as God's redeemed people, enter into the presence of God with Christ and reign with Him forever. It's no small thing that the end of verse two says he is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. The most powerful position in the universe and therefore he has full authority to redeem sons and daughters and bring them into the glory of the Father too. That power is given to him. That was the mission to begin with. For the joy that was set before him. Listen to Jesus in his high priestly prayer. John seventeen four. Jesus praying to God, the Father said, I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you've given me to do. What's that? Giving his life as a ransom for many. Christ completed the work. And then he said in verse five, and now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory that I had with you when before the world existed. You say, what was the joy that was set before Christ that was so powerful and so attractive that he would endure the cross, despise its shame, and go through such an ignominious death? What was it? What was it? It was being reunited with the Father and the Spirit in the glory that He enjoyed. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit before anything ever was. There was a great excitement and a great joy of Christ ascending to the throne with the Father and the Spirit and together again that triune God and enjoying that incredible joy of glorifying one to the other but it was not the full extent of his joy. You say, well, that would be sufficient to drive Christ. Agreed. But it was more than that. Oh, and I hope you're still listening because this will grab your heart. If nothing's grabbed your heart thus far, this will. The full extent of Jesus' joy was anticipating your presence. The full extent of Jesus' joy that was set before him that enabled him to endure the cross was knowing that you would reign with him forever. You see, he would return to his former glory, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, reigning together, but he would return different. When he came as a spirit, Christ would return different to the heavenly realm. Before he came, it was God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, all three spirit, And then Christ did what? He came to earth and through the miraculous birth of the Virgin Mary became a man. And when Christ ascended into heaven, we know from the book of Acts he ascended bodily as a man. And so he would return to the Father, truly God, truly man, forever and ever. And it was in this, this great anticipation of Christ being glorified with the Father as the God-man the Savior, the high priest, with his people. That's the joy that was set before him. We heard in Hebrews 4.14 that since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, listen, Jesus, the man, the Son of God, the God-man, let us hold fast our confession. The joy that was set before Jesus Christ was being exalted with the Father and the Spirit again in your presence as the God-man as our high priest. And this is where the power to run this race comes from for us. This is how we're able to hear a teaching like this and not grow faint and not grow weary. Because Jesus Christ assumed that highest position, high priest at the right hand of God. And therefore, my beloved, he is able through the Holy Spirit to dispense all the power you need to run hard and well and long to the end. He is. In Christ, all the power you need exists to run the race of faith well. The joy that was set before Jesus as He approached the cross was the glory of God the Father and God the Spirit, but this time as the God-man who would reign forever and ever with His church, with you. The joy of having Jesus, I would argue, should compel you to finish the the race, to cross the line, because it was the joy of having you that compelled him to finish. He endured the cross. He despised its shame because he had you in mind. Oh, my goodness, saints. He had your name written upon him. If Jesus went through such extreme measures to make his joy complete, running his race, all the way into the flames of hell so he could be glorified at God's right hand and reign with you forever and ever, then we can run the race too. Not because we're strong enough, but because Christ is strong enough and he completed it for us. Christ has already endured the cross and therefore the Bible says that victory is won. Right When he said to Telestai, it is finished, Victory is complete. The race is completed for you. Christ is won, so you have won. Christ's finished, so you finished. The victory is his, therefore the victory is ours. That's why John said, 1 John 5, 4, for everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that has overcome the world, what? Our faith. The victory that overcomes the world, your flesh, the culture, the demonic forces, is the faith that we have in Jesus Christ. Jesus is the founder. He ran the race for us, and he is the perfecter. He's at the finish line waiting for us. I don't know if Christina Quantz shared with you, in 1982, her father, Nikolai he fled Ceausescu's brutal Romanian regime as a believer being persecuted, and he was able to make his way into Europe and then to the United States. But he had to do so by leaving his wife and Christina behind. He came first, made the dangerous journey in order to secure residency, in order to find a job, support his family. He put his life on the line in order to do it, not for himself per se, but for his family. He became the founder and perfecter of their new life in America. Thirteen long months later, by God's miraculous grace, and Christina will testify to this, her mother and Christina received passports to come to the United States too and join Nikolai. But if Nikolai had not made the journey first, if he had not set out putting his life in danger, then there would have been no escape for the entire family. He crossed the finish line for his family, and then he listened. He waited 13 months for them to join him. He waited for them to come. But they had to follow. They were being persecuted too in his absence. The government was trying to put pressure to tell them where he was. They did not capitulate. And by God's grace, they were delivered. But they followed. They had to put their trust in God, which they did. And they had to put their trust in Nicolai. And they followed. And they made it here. And by God's grace, they were able to worship God freely. My beloved, if you have put your faith in Jesus Christ to save you, then salvifically, you are already saved. You've crossed the finish line too. Already. If you this morning said, my faith is in Jesus Christ, then you've crossed that finish line too. 1 Corinthians 15, 57, thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Thanks be to God that we've won the race. The author of your faith, Jesus Christ, has completed it, and now he's what? He's waiting for you. He's waiting for us to join Him. So we've seen, one, the instructions to run, I pray. Number two, the power to run. And lastly, and I'll close, the reason we should run. Look at verse 3. The author says, Consider Him, Christ, of course, who endured from sinners such hostility against Himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. The word considered, we've already looked at this, it's a very weak translation. It literally means here's a better translation for one word. Think deeply about and draw a conclusion about this founder and perfecter of your faith. Think deeply about and draw a conclusion about Jesus as your Lord and Savior. Now when we consider our Lord's endurance in light of such extreme suffering on the cross, we will be encouraged not to grow weary. We will not grow faint hearted. You see when the son of God arrived on earth, what he should have received was a hero's welcome. He should have been by his creation adored and worshiped and honored. That should have been the right response but we know the gospel account, we're told in John chapter one that he came to his own and what? His own did not receive him. His own what? His own creation. Those that he, Jesus Christ, made in his own image, that he spoke into being, they did not receive him. And even more painful, his own people, Israel, those redeemed by God, did not receive him. They treated him with unspeakable hostility. And yet what? He endured to the end for the joy that was set before him. He endured for the glory of God. He endured for the church. He endured for you. He could have stopped it at any time. You know that, right? You remember the dialogue with Pontius Pilate hours away from the crucifixion? He's talking with Pontius Pilate and Pilate says, don't you realize I have the power to kill you? And Jesus says in Matthew 26, 53, do you not think that I cannot call on my father and he will at once put at my disposal more than 12 legions of angels? It would only take one to stop it. 12 legions. 12 legions. Christ says, I can stop this whole thing right now like that. This, I believe, is a most profound thought for us, my beloved. Jesus, following through with the cross, being treated so horrifically by his own creation with such contempt, knowing the entire time he can stop it if he wants. As sinful, finite creatures, most of us, when we're suffering and going through trials, we are powerless to change things. And when you're physically sick or injured, do you just snap your fingers and suddenly you're well? You want to, right? You pray that prayer, oh Lord, heal me. When your finances are tight and you are having trouble making ends meet, can you snap your fingers and become rich? You cannot, but Jesus, the Son of God, had all the power at his fingertips, God the Father, to stop the horrific nightmare of the cross and yet he endured. He endured so that we would endure. He endured so that we would not grow weary. He endured because of the joy that was set before him. You. What patience, what love, and what grace. What a joy it must have been in the Son's heart to picture the Father and the Spirit reigning with Him, the God-man, and His church forever and ever. So extreme is this act of love. The author says we must consider it, meditate on it, think about it daily for two essential reasons, not to grow weary and not to grow faint-hearted. You know that that word in the Greek, faint-hearted, literally means to faint in your soul. That's not good. We don't want our souls fainting. We don't want to not make it to the finish line. The danger of growing weary and losing heart is consistent with the metaphor of running, is it not? In fact, Aristotle used the exact same phrase in his writings before the author of Hebrews. He talked about it though in the context of those growing weary and losing heart after they crossed the finish line. They crossed the finish line and then they would collapse. The author grabs it and he says, I'm giving it to you as a warning that you don't grow weary and lose heart before you finish the race. That was the warning. Hebrews chapter 10, for you have need of what? You have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. That is the crown of glory, that is Christ himself. Weariness makes the soul of any of us vulnerable to temptation, to discouragement, to despair, Get too weary too long and you may turn away from God altogether. We've seen it too many times in this little church. The stress of persecution that this first century church was going through made them very weary. Their hearts were heavy. I would argue today that the stress on many churches in light of the sheltering in place and all the noise that's going on these past six months has made many Christians here in the Bay Area very weary. Many in the state of California Many no longer running fervently, this race set before them. Many just trying to hold on or simply going through the motions. Many engaged in sin, bound, and many, I fear, will not make it to the end because of the weariness that has come upon us now. What a timely message for us, my beloved. What a timely message for Cambrian Park Baptist Church for us to combat this by considering what Jesus endured so that you can endure in him. Consider what Jesus went through so that you can go through it in him. Again, not by your own strength, but by his strength because he finished the race for you. Christ did not allow the weariness or despair or discouragement of the cross to deter him for a minute. He set his face to it and then ran the race all the way into heaven. He did that so that through his victory, you will not become weary or faint-hearted, but you will run the race set before you by God. The Apostle Paul, which I had read earlier in 1 Corinthians 9, he said, Do you not know that a race, that in a race all runners run, but only one receives the prize? Listen. He said, So run that you may obtain it. That makes perfect sense. If you're going to run the race, run to win the prize. And then he says, every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable, the crown of glory. And then Paul said, so I, Paul's now speaking to himself, I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body and I keep it under control lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. Paul's saying, you got to work hard to run the race well. Mortify the sin. Make sure that what that weighs you down no longer binds you to run. And then we know in 2 Timothy, and I'm so glad that Paul gave us this. 2 Timothy 4, as Paul approached his last days, he made this glorious claim. This is not boasting in Paul. This is boasting in Christ. 2 Timothy 4, 7, he says, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. My beloved, listen. Those you want to be your dying words as you are on your deathbed, ready to take your last breath and enter into eternity, into the presence of God, either to be redeemed for eternity or to be judged for all eternity, you want to be able to say with a true heart, I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, I have kept the faith. Mm. You should want those to be your words so that your life now maximizes the glory God receives for the work of Christ in your life. You should want to be able to come before the Lord as a glorious gift and the Lord look upon you and truly say well done good and faithful servant, not because of your flesh, but because of what Christ did through you. You should want that deeply, if you have a deep love for God. And I would say according to this passage, You should want those words to be your words so that you make it across that finish line. Jesus said the one who endures to the end will be saved. Those who do not, will not. This is a salvific passage. This is a gospel passage. Your eternity depends upon you finishing the race. Your eternity depends upon you enduring to the end. Jesus finished the race, going to the cross, dying and rising from the dead, so that you could have him. By this gospel, 1 Corinthians 15, 2, you are saved, if what? If you hold firmly to it. Otherwise, you have believed in vain. I want to end on this note. My beloved, this is not just about bringing the most glorious offering to God forever and ever. That should motivate you. But this is also about your eternal salvation. You can't turn back. That leads to destruction. You can't stop running. You got to work hard in the Spirit of Christ, you got to be in your word daily that you might have the word of God speak to you instead of your own voice and your own wisdom or God forbid this culture. You must be with God daily in prayer, asking for strength and encouragement and wisdom on how to live this life of faith. We must faithfully, my beloved, this is a command to the church, let us together run this race. It means, my beloved, that we've got to be better as members of a covenant church. When the church gathers to pray, gather with the church and pray. If not, you're not running well. When the church gathers like this to sing and pray and proclaim the gospel, gather with the church or you're not running well. When the church meets in small groups to encourage one another and build each other up, if you're not meeting, you're not running well. When the church goes out and shares the gospel and makes disciples, if you're not participating, you're not running well. You say, well, what's the consequence? A poor testimony. Worse yet, loss of life. Eternal damnation. Work hard in the power of the Spirit to run this race of faith well. For as long as God gives you, and the older you are, the harder it gets. But you want to come before that Lord, the Lord on that day. You want to come before the Lord And you want to receive the joy that was set before you. The joy that was set before the Son is the glorification of the Father and Spirit in the presence of the church as the God-man forever and ever. The joy set before you, it's Christ. It is the high priest. It is your King. It is your Savior. It is the lover of your soul. That is the joy set before you. You say, well, give me If I have to remember one thing to run this race well, fix your eyes on Christ. Don't take them off. Not for a minute. And you'll run hard. You'll run harder than you could ever imagine. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, forgive us for the distractions of this day and this time. I pray, Lord, you would overcome all of that by taking what was preached from this passage, this most extraordinary passage, imperative given to us by the author of Hebrews and you would apply it right now by your spirit to our hearts and minds. It has been proclaimed. It has been received. Now make it part of who we are. Cause us to be a people individually but more importantly collectively. Let us be a people together that run really hard the race of faith. Father the church is in great danger today. We know that you promise that the gates of hell will not prevail against it. But we are in great danger here in this country, in this state, and certainly this area. Many Christians have grown weary. Many churches have, have stopped meeting altogether and not planning on meeting until next year. Father, I ask that you would encourage us greatly. That we might encourage others. That you would compel us to be bound together in this great run. That we would bind our arms together. That we'd be interconnected because we are. And that we would run hard and help others run hard too. That we might collectively as a church, Cambrian Park Baptist Church, be presented to you as a glorious offering. Transformed utterly by the power of the Holy Spirit into the image of Jesus. Father, help us run. Cause us to run. Compel us to run. Every moment of every day. Until you call us home or until you come again in glory. Make us a running people. We ask this in Christ's holy name, amen.